Hi, this is the Robberator, and you can support my mad grab for power and the Sword and Laser podcast by going to patreon.com slash sword and laser. Hey everyone, welcome to the Sword and Laser. I'm Veronica Belmont. And I'm Tom Merritt. Sword and Laser is a book club, but it's so much more. We bring you author interviews, news from the world of science fiction and fantasy, and awesome discussions from fans just like you. On this week's episode, we're interviewing Fran Wild, author of this month's book pick, Updraft. Her short stories and articles have appeared throughout the years in publications like Asimov's, Clark's World, io9, Tor.com, even the Washington Post. And she's also helped nurture young minds as a high school and college teacher, or corrupted them into the dark world of genre fiction. You decide. The follow-up to Updraft, Cloudbound, will be out this September from Tor. Haven't heard of Updraft or read it along with us? It's the story of Kira Denzira, who cannot wait to pass her wing test and begin flying as a traitor by her mother's side, being in service to her beloved home tower and exploring the skies beyond. When Kira inadvertently breaks tower law, the city's secretive governing body, the Singers, demand that she become one of them instead. In an attempt to save her family from greater censure, Kirit must give up her dreams to throw herself into the dangerous training at the Spire, the tallest, most forbidding tower deep at the heart of the city. As she grows in knowledge and power, she starts to uncover the depths of the Spire's secrets. Kirit begins to doubt her world and its unassailable laws, setting in motion a chain of events that will lead to a haunting choice and may well change the city forever, if it isn't destroyed outright. Fran, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. Uh, we're so pleased to have you on, especially since we're, you know, we're wrapping up or we have wrapped up Updraft. And uh, it's very rare that we actually get an author of the book we're reading to come onto the show in the same Who's month. brave enough to Yeah. <laughs> I think it's really cool. It's a little terrifying, but, you know. You were saying before the show that you um, are familiar with uh, Ramez Nam, who we had on a previous episode. Yes. Definitely. Um, I love talking about his books, especially Nexus, uh, as well as Daryl Gregory's books. I don't know if you've had Daryl on the show, but they're doing Mm-mm. they're doing a lot to sort of move the needle on cyberpunk into um, imbibables and and sort of swallowable um, brain altering technology, which I think is really cool. And so I was listening to Mez talk and he was being really smart on your podcast. And that was not intimidating at all. No, (laughs) it wasn't intimidating to us either that he's like (laughs) 10 times as smart as all of us combined. I know, right? Definitely not at all intimidating. I love that. So is there an entire genre of imbibables? Is that what you said? Um, Like, I haven't discovered it yet. I think that they're going that way. It's, you know, technology has gotten smaller and now it's ingestible. And so you're not wearing the, the, um, the rig on your head. You're not, you know, sitting in front of a giant computer. You're not inside the whatever simulation anymore. It's, it's just become part of you and you can hear the hive mind or whatever. And um, that sort of relates to another interest of mine, which is food and, and fiction. So eventually I'll get Mez on the show and he can be smart on my show. <laughs> Absolutely. That's right. So you were saying that you've, uh, you've been podcasting for a while too. For four, four years, almost five. Um, and it's not a very shiny, fancy show. It's just a sort of, we just got on iTunes this year, but we've been talking to authors and editors and agents about the intersection of food and fiction. Uh, it's called Cooking the Books, and I occasionally get yelled at by people that 
you know, think that I'm doing something nefarious with that, but it's just books. <laughs> or, or people who are hoping to find out how to do accounting practices yeah. <laughs> in, in shady ways and they get disappointed. Well, I mean, you know, when you're interviewing somebody and they start talking about something that is completely unrelated to the topic at hand, like mm-hmm. I'm doing right now. I, um, the, one of my first interviews was Joe Haldeman and I was all set to talk to him about MREs and um, Vietnam because he's a vet. Mm-hmm. And I had done tons of research and was very prepared. And he leaned in because it was on Skype. So he leaned into the screen and said, do you want to know how to make pizza in a foxhole using plastique? And all my notes went out the window. And I said, go, this is perfect. And that was one of the first ones we did. Why didn't he talk to us about that when we had him on the show? That's disappointing. I love pizza. <laughs> um, so we have a ton of great questions from our from our audience. And of course, the book is very fresh in their mind because they just finished it up. Yes. Uh, we're going to try to stay away from spoilers, at least for the ending of the book, because Tom, Tom hasn't quite finished yet. No, I finished it, Veronica, because it's a week later than <laughs> when you think it is. I'm totally finished. <laughs> Using time travel to your benefit again, Tom Merritt? Yes, always. <laughs> so we'll, we'll try to stay away from the very last chapters, at least. But we're, we're covering more conceptual ideas and, and kind of the world-building aspects of, of Updraft and the Bone universe. Sure. Um, so our first question comes from Darren. And this is actually something that we talked a lot about in the uh, initial episode about Updraft when we first started reading it and about some of the questions people had as to whether or not it's YA. Uh, Darren asks, uh, how does she feel about YA as a label, label uh, slash genre? That's a really good question. I think um, as far as YA labeled literature, literature that comes out with um, under an imprint that, that is specifically YA, there is a, an amazing amount of good stuff out there, just great reading. Um, one of my favorites over the past year was M.T. Anderson's Feed. Uh, you can tell I'm a huge nerd on the slide, <laughs> but um, <laughs> just talking because there's a, there's a question coming down the, down the stream about dystopias. It's, there is a way to write um, that isn't necessarily, it's it, Eugene Myers described YA a, to me on a car ride up to Boscone a couple of months ago um, in a way that really resonated with me. And it's just that, that the main character is discovering things about their world. And at the same time, they are discovering things about themselves. And by the end of the book, they kind of change their world in, in a specific way. And that's a really nutshell definition of YA. Um, with that in mind, there are so many great books out there that are not labeled YA that do have YA characteristics or do sort of blend um, or play the, in between the lines or play the boundaries between YA and adult. And I tend to like both. It just depends on uh, what I feel like reading at the time. So as a label or a genre, sometimes I um, gravitate towards YA and sometimes I look for things that are you know, epic in nature. Uh, it's interesting to me when a YA book is categorized way or something is categorized way specifically um, based on the age of the character. And I'd, mm-hmm. I'd be interested to hear what, what your audience thought about it or where they came from. Are, th- are there examples of something that's YA that has no actual young adult characters in it? 
Well, I was thinking more about um, books that. Well, a if you look if you look on popular media, like the time list of of YA books, half of those books are middle grade or younger, um, or they're like saying, "Well, The Hobbit's YA," and I'm like, eh, it's not really. And and there was a big mm-hmm. argument at the time that when The Hobbit came out about why this was acceptable for anybody to read, not just kids, because at the time it was. I wish I had the quote handy, but the New York Times just blasted everybody who said, "If you think this is an easy book." or if this is just a kid's book, which that phrase, just a kid's book, is why I think YA is sometimes so embattled, because they're, they're not simple books in any way, shape, or form. Um, and to simplify them is to really condescend to the readers. Kids are reading difficult stuff. They're dealing with difficult issues. Um, but with, in the case of The Hobbit, because it was a fantasy, I, and I think at the time people were looking at nonfiction as sort of uh, nutritious things to read and and the novel in and of itself had just come out of an era when where um it was viewed as something that would hurt your brain if you read too much of them um and the hobbit being fantasy but so much more than that it's talking about war and it's talking about you know coming back from war it it really hit a nerve among people who felt that certain things should be read by certain groups and not by others and so when you talk about the YA label as a genre, it is a marketing label. It's a way to find books on the shelves, um, but it's also sort of um, a way to find certain things and, and certain types of books. Um, for Updraft, it was, it was tough because Updraft crosses a couple of boundaries. It deals with topics that are not traditionally YA, and then it deals with um, a character who is having a pretty, you know, YA journey in the middle of it so Mm. it it crossed both lines and I I when when Tor asked me if I wanted to take it out adult I said yes because I thought that would be cool I love that definition of young adult being about a person who is not only changing themselves but also the world isn't that great yeah I think that's so well put he wrote an essay um and he sent me the link to it and I I he have you had him on the show Eugene Myers not yet, but he we should. wrote Fair Coin, and he's been working on um, a couple of books for um, The Silence of the Six, and then he's just got a sequel out now, and they're and they're great books. But when when he talks about what defines way, he's so very eloquent. That's awesome. And uh, Terp Kristen also has a question uh, about the literal world building in Updraft. Uh, she wants to know when will we learn more about the world and what the bones are from? Well, the next book is called Cloudbound. And all of your readers who have been reading along this month should know what that means. We're going down. Mm. Um, so yes. Oh, that's so exciting. This is like the number one thing I want to know about. Like, I can't wait to find out what the bones are from and and like what the city actually is. And I have so many questions. Yeah, I'm not going to share. And again, any more of my theories on this, but I have so many theories in my head. And I I, I would be excited if I end up guessing it right. But I will be more excited if I guess if I didn't get it at all, I think. Oh, man, I don't really have theories. I have like a nebulous sense of how it feels to be in the world. But I don't have like a strong sense of what is actually going on, which I've kind of I kind of really like. Um, And I like that you're not explicit about what is going on. And and of course, now it sounds like we might learn more in the next book. And spoiler, Tom, we don't learn at the end of this book. I mean, the so spoilers, you can be spoiled the for that. Should be directed at the audience who want to listen to this interview before they've read Updraft, even sure. if, if they haven't. You you don't have to keep pointing them at me. 
No, I, I prefer to point them at you. No, I know you do. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we won't find out what we might find out in the next book. That's that's Terp Kristen's answer. Definitely. Um, I think I mean, one of the advantages to writing in first person is that you can reveal things as the characters find them out. Yeah. So that, right. that is a lot of fun to play with, especially when you've got characters that don't necessarily know or have their their society has sort of um, evolved past knowing. Yeah, you know, that's interesting, because I, I, I had kind of been realizing throughout the, the telling of the story that it doesn't necessarily just because it's normal to them doesn't necessarily mean they know what's going on. Mm-hmm. And for me, it's like, I, I live in a house, I, I don't know the history of what wood my house is made of, or where it came from, or, or the things living within it. There's, there's so much I don't know about my world and my place that I just kind of take for granted. And I feel like perhaps some of that is, is also going on in this world. Absolutely. Uh, I think I've talked before about how Updraft is a long term scarcity society. They don't, the people who live there don't really realize that they're missing things because it's been missing for so long. And mm. part of their social and cultural history has been lost, um, in part because it's hard to carry things up, especially as the towers are growing up. Um, I wrote an essay for tour.com back in September called change the language, change the world and talked about how I kind of flipped the prepositions so that everything was looking up instead of down. Um, in part because I really wanted to talk about how we leave things behind that aren't convenient or easy for us to carry with us. Hmm. And um, this society in particular is so focused on moving up. It is um, important to them socially it's also um, a lot nicer at the top. If you're living below a lot of people, it's it's the kind of the engineering problem of, of things get dropped on you and um, it's kind of yucky down there. So they, they are very uh, motivated to move up. But as you move up in the society, you have to leave things behind. Not everything can go up with you. And, and some of the things that they've left are, are definitely um, things that would be useful to them as much as any other um, thing in a scarcity society that when you have, when you have something that goes suddenly scarce, like if you have a a major um, weather event or a, you know, some sort of global problem where all of a sudden you're cut off and you don't have electricity anymore, or God forbid somebody comes in and takes the Wi-Fi away, you've got a scarcity society, but it's a very fast one and everybody remembers what they lost. When you have a slow burn scarcity society where things just sort of drop off or, or get, lost slowly people don't necessarily know what they're missing well and regarding your your choosing of language uh darren wanted to know why kirit doesn't call ezrit mom that's a that's another good question she does call her mother a couple of times Mm -hmm. um, but it's very selective and it's in part because ezrit's trying to well ezrit is is very ambitious i think everybody has has figured that out but (laughs) she um is also travels a lot and is away a lot and kirit has developed some mechanisms for um working with her mother and trying to get her mother to do things and and um they she calls it negotiating which is part of what Ezerit is very very good at and addressing Ezerit um as an individual instead of in that hierarchical relationship as one of Kirit's strategies 
I love their names too. All all the names in the book feel very bird like to me. Was that was that intentional? Absolutely intentional. Um, okay. I spent a lot of time. Um, well, I live very near a very large park that's got a lot of wildlife in it, and then I I live within driving distance to uh, the eastern shore of Maryland, which is filled with birds, and I just sat for a long time and took notes about the sounds I heard and put them in a journal. And eventually when I was ready to create names, I pulled from those. Oh, wow. That's really oh. cool. See, I would have, if, if I had had to guess, I would have said that you had looked at bird names because they, they mimic that as well. So it's really interesting to kind of put those pieces together that listening to the bird sounds also gives you bird name like, because I guess that's how we named birds probably at the beginning. Sometimes. I think um, there are definitely some birds that are named based on what they sound like. With um, a society like this, where most of what they hear is is bird sounds and the wind Mm -hmm. and and other things, naming systems like that would definitely be appropriate. Um, Some of the older laws that they have brought up with them um, that are very, very old have very complicated names to them, like Bethaliel. I was just about and, to say Bethaliel. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and then there are newer laws that are very short, single syllable laws that are, you know, very clear and to the point. And those, you can, I wanted it to be without saying so, that this was a society that is constantly evolving and remaking themselves, but they still have artifacts from previous generations. The names, though, because things, because people are born and, and die fast, especially in a situation where everybody's flying and there's giant invisible things that eat you and there's gravity, there, there's a lot of turnover and churn in the names. And so that would evolve faster than, say, the laws. So giving those particular things bird names just gave it more of a feeling that they were sort of closer to becoming bird-like. Yeah. That's really interesting. Uh, we also have another related question from EC who says, what, what kind of research did you do to develop and describe the technology around their wings and the cloud cities and towers? So um, that EC Myers is, is Eugene Myers, who I was just talking oh. about. Um, <laughs> we got a so. plant over here, guys. We got a plant. Well, he asked a tough question. Um, I did a lot of research. I did a lot of research into high altitude plants that would work in at this, at this level. Um, I did a lot of looking at what possible bone structures could grow and how to manipulate those so that they could be um, raised that you you have some scenes where people are using something called scour scour weed to scrape mm-hmm. at the towers and that actually when you abrade bone it will grow a new piece sometimes in certain kinds of bone for the wings and for the bridges in specific the bridges were kind of easy. I love bridges. I have, um, I have a lot of engineers in my family. So the building of bridges and, and different kinds of mechanical things is something that I've heard a lot about for many, many years. But I also um, love reading stories like the building of the Brooklyn Bridge and the Roeblings and, and those, um, all of those sort of nonfiction books that are really, really great at just describing the drama of building something that large in um, an area that maybe doesn't have as much technology. With the wings, I did a little bit differently. I did a deep study about of of the history and mythology of man-made wings. I went back about 2000 years. Um, I looked at all sorts of different individuals over the course of time that have tried to fly and failed. 
Um, there is a really hilarious, um, to me, series of people jumping off of towers, starting in the 11th century and going until about the 16th century. And they all, almost all of them forget to pick their feet up. They, they just sort of put wings on and jump and they break a lot of stuff. So that was a good lesson. And it reminded me to put a foot sling on the, on the wing design so that they could, you know, jump off the tower and pick their feet up and then they could plane very easily. Mm. Um, So if you go to a, a church in England called Malmesbury, it's an abbey. I think it's an abbey. Um, there is a monk named Elmer of Malmesbury. And I think in 1146 AD, he did just that. He jumped off a tower with wings and broke both legs. Um, it, none of these turned out very well, but he got himself a stained glass window. And in, <laughs> worth it. Very, very worth it. There, um, in Turkey, there is a stamp dedicated to a, a gentleman named Ahmed Chaledi. And in the 17th century, he actually flew very far. He flew across a river, according to local legend. He, he jumped off of a tower and flew across a river and landed successfully. So you could actually have, based on his experience, a whole um, – alternate history where people were flying by the time they got to the 19th century. Um, Unfortunately, he was um, exiled by the Khan. The Khan found him very scary and sent him to Algeria to live. So there was no more flying for him. Uh, He just got sent somewhere, at least. He wasn't murdered outright. So good for him. No. Success. Um, I wanted to steer away from the Da Vinci Codex as much as possible, although that, that was definitely in play. Um, But there are so many other really interesting experiments with flight um, all the way up to the Wright brothers, some of the gliders that the Wright brothers were making. Um, other people um, now even were are um, using wingsuits to fly. I think the the longest distance is a couple of miles um, using some of the squirrel suits and wingsuits. I got I get very interested in um, videos of Jeb Corwitt. Uh, who is a, a daredevil and a, a flyer who just um, likes to do lots of base jumping and uh, other things. There's a great picture of one of his groups or a group of his friends, I think, that are hanging out on a net over the Grand Canyon. They built this net and they're just sitting out there and it's just very, very high up. Nope. Um, yeah, no, I mean, it's funny because I'm actually uh, not a great friend of heights. So doing all this research was kind of exciting and kind of terrifying um, and the last thing I did was I went and I got, uh, and you can do this sort of all over the country now, but at the time that I was writing, there they were very few and far between. I did um, an indoor skydiving up in um, New Hampshire where um, West Point, the West Point skydiving team trains. And I got in a big wind tunnel and just felt what it would be like to um, be sort of pretend fighting in a wind tunnel that way. So that was really cool. I've done that before. It's pretty fun. It's and so much fun. Isn't it amazing, though, how it, the, even the, the most minor of motions just shoots you off into a different direction? It's it's pretty unbelievable, especially when you start getting the hang of it. And yes. You can control it a little bit more and you're not just flailing about like a crazy person. It, it is. And that's that's a funny story because, again, I get a little bit of vertigo. I don't know if you do, but I, I um, was a gymnast when I was a kid. And so when I'm terrified, my default is to point my toes and smile because gymnastics, it's what they train you to do. And so I got in this um, wind tunnel and the fans went on and 
darn if I wasn't pointing my toes and smiling. And the person that's in there with you just looked at me and said, wow, you look like you know what you're doing. You're planked. You're great. Let's try this. And he oh, sort no. of swung me around and I went flying up into the air. I didn't throw up on him, much to my credit. <laughs> Oh my gosh, that I can't imagine wonder. what throw up in the wind tunnel would yeah, be no, like. Yeah, no, nobody wants that. <laughs> that definitely happened, has happened Never before, I'm sure. Head. Yeah. <laughs> it, is, are, that makes me wonder, is anyone in the towers uh, afraid of heights? Um, yes. Actually, there is a short story at Beneath Ceaseless Skies about um, a, a young woman who is afraid to fly. Mm. Um so there, there are a lot of different things. Um, one of the things that I sort of wanted to weave in was different, different abilities, different ways of dealing with things. Um, one of the characters that you meet very early is um, going skyblind. She's got cataracts, mm. which is a normal um, thing to have happen when you're living that, that much outdoors and that close to the sky. Um, and there are other characters who have other um, things going on that... Um, to buy it, for instance, is one of my favorite characters, in part because nobody really understands why he's the way he is until Nat figures it out. Now, Alan has a couple of questions about labels. He says, okay. I know in the end it probably doesn't matter, but I'm curious how she approaches it in her process. Uh, first of all, do you consider the book post-apocalyptic fiction or would that ruin the mystery? And <laughs> second, do you think the book's more fantasy, science fiction, or does it matter? Okay, I'm going to take the second question first, which is yes. Um, I, I love both fantasy and science fiction. I write both fantasy and science fiction. And um, my friend Max Gladstone, when he read Updraft, said, you know, there's no magic in your book. It's all engineering. And I thought for a minute, I thought, well, okay, there's, there's monsters, but there is, and there is magic in my book, but it is all engineering magic. So I kind of play that boundary a little bit. It is very secondary world, um, and secondary world is quite often fantasy. But in, in this case, I like the technology that they have come up with to adapt to their world, and I really wanted to explore that. Yeah, it's engineering fiction. Um, it it is very say. much engineering fiction. It is something that I really enjoy writing about. Ooh, 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 ooh. Wind punk. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Wind punk. It's cool because uh, along with Updraft, Ken Liu's um, Grace of Kings came out, came out and he has kites and kite fighting in his book. And then Alan Smale had Grace of Eagles, which also came out last year. And he's got um, characters flying in his book too. Although in, in mine, I have the advantage of launching from great height and the um, wind, of, there's a pretty, very particular wind effect that happens up against very tall buildings, which is they generate their own updrafts. And so I was playing with that. When awesome. Alan goes to launch his characters, he actually uses a modified railgun, which is really cool. <laughs> that sounds a little more violent. Yeah. <laughs> perhaps. <laughs> I like how we so now you're 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 gonna be the the queen of wind punk. Uh, Ken <laughs> is silk punk. Yeah. We're gonna see how many more uh, punks we can work into genre fiction All within the, the next couple of years. Yeah, I'm into it. <laughs> okay. We had um we had a couple of questions from Trig and Ian uh, that are related. Uh, they want to know if uh, George R. Martin and Lisa Tuttle's Windhaven was an inspiration, or uh, what about Hot House by Atlas? I haven't read either. Um, Windhaven is on my to-be-read list for after I finish the series, but neither one of them. 
Awesome. I, yeah, I think that's the inspiration question is always hard because there's always that gut feeling of like, are they asking me if I borrowed ideas from these other books? <laughs> right. You know, I always feel like an, a very accusatory when I ask that. And yet everyone always wants to know. But I think it's possible to take inspiration from other worlds or other things and incorporate ideas into into your text without it being copying. Um, but it is, uh, and it's hard not to be inspired if you're well read and if you love genre fiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is, it's a complicated question. I, I sort of answered it on the book smugglers back in September, um, as far as what the literary family tree for updraft was. Um, and I I did it with a mix of I, I illustrated it because I had been writing so many blog posts by that point I just started to draw, uh, but some of the major influences from when I was drafting it were books like the Codex Seraphinianus, which is um, an illustrated false document, um, and in part it had an introduction to it by one of my favorite author- authors, Italo Calvino. Uh, and Italo Covino wrote a book called Invisible Cities, which is a, 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 a what? I'm I such a nerd. <laughs> it is. It's one of my favorites. It's it's something that I always aspire to when I'm world building because he can just encapsulate the awe of looking at something that is completely irregular and still make it make sense on the page using very few words. So, and he has a lot of cities in the air. So I was looking at that. Um, China Mieville is a, is a big influence. I think uh, a lot of people are, are pretty familiar with that. And Anne McCaffrey as well. Mm, um, I can see, I can see some of the, 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 uh, the bones of the city kind of in a, was that Perdido street station? Yeah. 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 Um, and then the, um, Borges is, is a big one. Um, and then I, back way back in another life, I was a Milton scholar. And there's definitely um, a little bit of Paradise Lost probably in there somewhere. Um, That's awesome. See, see, guys on Goodreads, you were all wrong. (laughs) (laughs) But when I wrote the first, the first story um, was very short, it was just a 1500 word story um, that was in response to a prompt that I was given at a writing workshop. And I had, I had been planning on writing this huge mechanical Turk story because I really love automatons. And about one o'clock in the morning, you know that thing where your brain just goes, nope, that's not what you're doing. I wrote instead an organic megacity that was constructed of living bone. And I wrote pretty much a fall from the city down to the ground. So there are about 20 people who know what's down there and who have known for three years and have been sworn to secrecy and, oh, wow. and they get to take the label off and, 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 you know, take the tape off and in a couple of months. So they're, I, I'm very excited for them because they haven't been speaking for three years. Um, but at, at the same time, um, when I, when I came back from the workshop with that, I sent it to FNSF because why not? And uh, Gordon Van Gelder did the most amazing thing. He sent me back ISBN numbers of stories that he thought I should read based on what I had written. And one of those was um, K.W. Jeter's Farewell Horizontal, which is a sci-fi story. Um, It's about a megacity and it's about living on these giant towers. And I loved it. Um, And the other one he sent me was a, a short story by Stephen Gould called Peaches for Mad Molly. And that is um, another sci-fi megacity sto- mega story, but it is about the food. And so you'll see, occasionally you'll see stone fruits, which are peaches um, in, in the story as well. And then um, one of the other things that I put on, if you go to the book Smugglers and look up um, Updraft and Inspirations, you'll see that um, <laughs> one of the tags is Juanita Weasel, which is uh, from the blog S. There's a 
<laughs> Does anybody know what that is? That's the, yes. one of the one of the characters. Her Patronus is Juanita Weasel, and that's just you know silliness on my part. What was the 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 um, the the uh, Mega City story? The last one you mentioned. Oh um, well, Peaches for Mad Molly is the short story by Stephen Gould. That's and the one. Then K.W. Jeter's Farewell Horizontal, uh, which Perfect. is just it's such a great story and it's really wild. We love to have these as recommendations yeah. for our listeners for We're later too, if they want to. <laughs> yeah, I could probably um, if you if you have a page, I could send you the the gif, but it's up there somewhere. Yeah, that'd be great. Uh, before we wrap up, Silvana has our last question. Any advice for new female authors in science fiction and fantasy? Any themes slash tropes to avoid? Oh, those are two different questions. Mm-hmm. Um, advice for female authors is don't give up. The tropes to avoid question, I am, I've been going on record with this a couple times. I'm a trope flipper. I'm not, I don't, I don't feel like tropes shouldn't exist. I like to play with them. Um, I think they're great literary devices unless they get overused. And if they are overused, then they become cliche. They're not tropes anymore. They've swapped, they've gone into phase shift and they've become cliches instead. And I think people get very militant about tropes because they're afraid of cliches when tropes are actually kind of helpful and useful sometimes. Um, Not all of them, not all tropes. Uh, There are some tropes that aren't very well thought through, but there are others that are just storytelling devices that are really excellent. Um, Yeah, I mean, can you really write a story without tropes of any kind? I I think, you know, eventually you're going to hit something that is, this, this is a familiar way to tell a story that helps us get into a world. And one of the things with Updraft, because I was introducing a very difficult world, I was asking everybody to be like, okay, we're going to start in the middle of this story, and it's in a place that you have never seen before. So I tried to keep the language a little simpler. I tried to keep um, the sentence structures a little simpler, especially at the, be- at the beginning. And um, that way, just to sort of make it a little bit easier to jump into the world. It depended um, on... <laughs> it turned out that um, the the wonderful person who read my audiobook um, was was a singer as well. She so she sang some of the songs. I had never actually heard them sung. So bringing that sort of mnemonic back into the audiobook was really great. Um, I, I traditionally write tons of tongue twisters because I have a poetry background and. Um, writing songs is great on the page, but then when you get out in public and have to read them, I would much rather play the audiobook version because I can't sing. <laughs> yeah, I was impressed by that listening to the audiobook. Uh, it, it did two things. It, it impressed me with the singing and it made me hungry for peaches quite often. <laughs> well, Kira's very driven by her stomach. Um, she's she she likes food. She's you know she's she's also kind of a, a one directional person. You set her on a course and she will run through walls to to hit a Mm -hmm. um and i am um i i think that that the book the audiobook was really really well done that way um it's going to be interesting and i'm i haven't uh, we haven't finalized anything yet but cloudbound is told from a different point of view Mm. so and i I can't really say who it is because for some people that will be spoilers but it is not kirit Um, so you get to see kirit from the outside which was really fun but you also get to um, get an entirely different perspective on the world, uh, which was also extraordinarily fun. Hmm. I think I, I, I can make some guesses, but I won't. <laughs> I won't. I'll save it for later. Okay. 
<laughs> well, yeah, the next time when the book comes out, we'll save it for after after we read uh, Cloudbound. Oh, that would be great. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us, Fran. Uh, where can people follow your work online? I have a website. It is franwild.net, F-R-A-N-W-I-L-D-E.net. Um, that will take you all sorts of different places. There is a bibliography with links to lots of free fiction. I've actually put up a couple of my short stories from Asimov's on my website, so people can read those as well. Um, There are links to buy books from your favorite independent bookstore or get them from your library or Audible, or um, you can come to my local bookstore virtually and get them to um, they will they will get me to sign anything and and in any way you like um, within reason and um, so all of that is on my on my website and then you can find me on Twitter I am much funnier on Twitter at Fran underscore wild and um, I'm on Instagram as well I'm on Tumblr but mostly just to take care of the Skymouth Protection Society over there which is just a a bunch of um, things that people have found that they think look like um, cephalopods that would be in the sky <laughs> well i have an ongoing argument with my copy editor about what because i like i like the the double dactyl of um giant invisible flying carnivorous squid i just yeah. like to say it but they're not squid because they don't have beaks so mm. instead it, it, it the, the the note in the copy edits says um highly aggressive tentacular cephalopod and um that's a little bit it doesn't have the rhythm but it's more accurate Following your Twitter, I'm more, I'm more concerned that you're going to have a lot of golden uh, oh chairs on the porch. <laughs> that was that just it. So, th- do we want to talk about Goldie? Because <laughs> free <Goldie's>, Goldie. <laughs> um, on Facebook, back in April, I had um, and on Instagram as well. I had I had come across a, a antique shop that was selling a 1970s Harvest Gold plush recliner. And it looked exactly like the one my spouse had given up because it was going to die. I mean, that recliner was just on its last legs anyway. Um, So I I put this up and an enormous number of people jumped in to say he really should have this recliner. He really needs this recliner. And it went on for months. And every once in a while, I'll post something else and somebody will say, hey, that's great. Did you get the recliner yet? So there is this whole free Goldie group and there's fan art and there's all this other things. And it's been a long couple of weeks and it's been really tough for everybody. And I just, I I lost a bet and had to post the story today. (laughs) So I, I tweeted it in pieces and I tweeted some of the great fan art. At some point, somebody was making a whole poster campaign out of free Goldie and putting um, Goldie on the Iron Throne. And um, (laughs) there's a free Goldie, free Willie poster. And then the the coup de grace was um, that they actually put Goldie on the cover of Updraft, which was funny and um, kind of terrifying. So yes, the, the idea that I will go outside and there will be 12 Harvest Gold recliners on my front porch tomorrow is is daunting i i I hope you can find some way to write goldie into a future book (laughs) somehow it's like a little nod to the fandom uh that is that is creeping up on you somebody has already come on twitter and said they ship goldie and the iron throne so i you know (laughs) chair punk is a thing now it's a thing well fran thank you this has been wonderful thanks for taking the time to answer our questions from the audience okay thank you audience for asking the questions Thank you so much, Fran. 
And for you guys out there, as you know, our show is currently entirely funded by our patrons. Thank you to all the folks who back our show, and if you would like to support the show that way, head to patreon.com slash swordandlaser. You can also support the show by buying books like Updraft by Fran Wild or all kinds of other links. Find links to the books we talk about and some of our favorites at swordandlaser.com slash picks. Also, make sure you leave us a review on iTunes. We love seeing those. If you want to get in touch with us, our email address is feedback at swordandlaser.com. Our website is swordandlaser.com. All of our discussions happen over on goodreads.com slash swordandlaser. And you can call and leave us a voicemail at 415-7-SWORD-6. We'll see you next time. Bye. Visit frogpants.com. Audio program so good, it's like you're there.